Well, every time I watched the band, I always wished I was musical. I watched Matthew play and I'm like, yeah, I'd be cool with like an electric guitar, but then I realized I'm not cool, so it's probably better that I don't, I don't have an electric guitar. Where we're at today is we're going to be in the book of Revelation. We've been there for the last uh, few weeks. <clears throat> We've been trying to kind of look at Revelation, not so much from the standpoint of digging into the details, but we've been trying to stay up at 30,000 feet. Now, a couple people have said to me, you know, gosh, I wish you would give us more details about what's going on. And, and I think the important detail you need to understand is that Jesus is coming back and he wins. There's the details, right? That's the good news. Now, in it, the reason I'm trying to stay up here is not so much to get us caught up in times and, and, and seasons and this happening and that happening, but to try to gain principles to just help us to see what it is that God is doing and how he's doing it so that we might live different lives. I don't want to just talk about these things. I want us to be different because we look at it. Now, as we've been going through it, though, we've been running into a lot of things that if you're like me, at times you can read certain things and it can almost begin to feel um, Hollywoodish, where you're like, gosh, that just seems so bizarre and so weird and, and I'm not sure what to do with it. But let me just tell you something, even though it might feel that way, it is absolutely real. There is a real Jesus. He is coming back. There is a real Satan whom Jesus will defeat. There is going to be this concept of a beast and a prostitute and a prophet and all these things that are being talked about. And I think what Jesus wants us to do again is to see these things we find out in Revelation 1-3 so that we might be blessed. We might be people that live in joy and confidence and expectation. I don't care if you're the oldest person in this room or the youngest person in this room. Every one of us in between this, when we grasp exactly what it is that John was writing as he was led by the Holy Spirit, is we're intended to come out of that with a new perspective and a new vision on life. Now, what we're going to look at today, and it seems so weird to do it, but I bet you never thought that you would hear that today I'm preaching on a prostitute. But we are. Now, I'm not talking like for those of you that are, are older, pretty woman type prostitute. I'm talking about a prostitute, though, that has huge implications on this world. And when I say that term, there's a lot of different things that probably go through your mind when you think about this concept of a, of a prostitute. But really what John's really trying to help us understand is that there, is a, there are real forces that are out there that are seeking to draw us away from Christ. Now, two of the, four of, I mean, excuse me, four of the hooks they're going to be looking at today is we're going to look at this idea of apocalypse, not apocalyptic like the world's falling apart, but the idea of God's revealing things to us. We're going to look at this concept of Jesus Christ as the central figure that everything is pointing towards him. We're going to look at the idea of prophecy. There's an expectation that God wants us to change. He's going to give us warning not to go certain directions. But last and foremost, and kind of as we look at this, that the thing that Jesus is bringing to us truly is blessing. But here's what we're going to do. I want everybody to kind of buckle in as we look at this. So if you need a Bible, there's Bibles back here. We'll be happy to bring it. If you're going to take notes on this, uh, there's notes on your, what do they call those things? What? Bulletin. Yeah, the you know it's going to be good today, huh? <laughs> Bulletin, gosh. Oh, man. But in, in, you can go ahead and take notes on that. I encourage you to, so that you study through this on your own, you can go back and take a look at some different things. Now, in Revelation 17, coming off what Chris did, is we're going to be looking at kind of what took place in regards to what he spoke on last week with these, with these seven bowls that got poured out. Now, in the seventh bowl, we know that in the way Chris talked about it, is everything began to just kind of cascade at this rapid pace. And there was a lot of imagery that was used that we were trying to understand exactly what it was that was going on at the very end. And now what John's going to do is he's going to take that little segment and he's going to help us to understand in a better way by using this image of a prostitute. Now, the prostitute, he tells us, is not just any prostitute, but a great prostitute. We also learn that this one, she's a mystery. There, there's, there's something that's been taking place all throughout the Old Testament, this mystery that's been leading up to this particular point. And the mystery is this, that he tells us in, cha in chapter 17, verses uh, 4 through 6, is that she represents Babylon the Great. Look at this. Mother of all prostitutes and averse abominations. How would you like to be called mother of all prostitutes? Hey, there's the mother of all prostitutes. Nice to meet you. But it just, it has this feel to it where they're trying to get, a, he's trying to get across this idea of this prostitute that's going to be accomplishing something, and she is great. 
We also learn about her that one of the things that she's going to be doing is is she has a golden cup. And this cup, it says, is full of abominations and the impurities, look at this, of her sexual immorality. Now, instantly, our mind goes to, well, of course, that's what prostitutes do. They commit sexual immorality. But when we study the Old Testament, what we find out is, is that Israel also played the kind of the, the prostitute or the adulterous wife and began to also seek out other relationships with people. And so it's, it's not so much talking about sex as it is something that I think is even bigger in this, is that she's playing the part of drawing people away from God. She's the one that when we talk about people choosing not to follow God, she's the one alluring people away. Kind of like in the book of Proverbs, there's this prostitute that sits and calls out to different young men and seeks to allure them in. This is what the prostitute is. She's calling out to the world. Now, who she, how she begins to call out, though, is pretty interesting. She calls out in a way where she allures herself in this way. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. In other words, what you have is, and I don't mean pig like representative of a woman, so don't go there, but lipstick on a pig. We're putting just a veneer on top of it. Now, here's why. This prostitute is putting this veneer on as the means of attracting others. But once they get close to her and realize who she is, they're going to start to realize this is not a woman that you want to know. Not only that, but it says the kings of the earth are going to have, and look how he says it here, they're going to be committing sexual immorality with her. Now, again, get out of your head the idea of sexual intercourse like we tend to think about. They are going after her instead of God. Let me just stop for a second. Sometimes we wonder in the back of our head, how is it that different ones climb to power? How is it that they get into the positions in which they get? Well, number one, the Bible tells us that God puts them there. But remember, we've been talking all the way through the book of Revelation that in his control, he even oversees everything that's happening with Satan, the angelic realm, different things, is that she's talking about this idea of this woman now elevating people to power through her immorality, through drawing them away from God and luring them by power and putting them into places of authority. Now, again, this is kind of seeming Hollywoodish, but just go with me for just a second. We find out that also that she's seated on many waters. Now, what is this seated on many waters thing? Well, not only is she seeking to now draw kings to herself, but the way that it talks about in 1715 is this angel says to John, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, meaning the prostitute doesn't just go after the leaders and put them into positions of power, but she puts them into positions of power so that she might have her influence over the whole world. And when I say whole world, that's crazy. There's an influence that there's this prince of the power of the air that we're going to talk about in a little bit that is all over the whole world. And sometimes we wonder, how is it that certain people rise to power? I mean, in some ways, I was trying to think just in the United States, our last two presidents, I still haven't figured out how they got into power. And and again, I'm just trying to pick on both sides here. How did they get there? And then to watch as just crowds and throngs begin to come behind them and coming behind them, they begin to rah-rah two men that, that I don't, I don't think are actually good guys. I'll just, I mean, we, we're going to now totally submit to them, but throngs of people that came in behind them telling them how wonderful they are. It's this allurement. And here's what she's doing though. The thing she's doing is watch this is the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become, look at that term, drunk. In other words, this allurement just starts to make you stupid. You start to not see the things like you ought to see the things. And, and again, in my, back in my past days, my pre-Jesus days, drunkenness is one of those things that look back on it, I was so stupid. And we wonder, how is it that people can be so stupid? But here's what she does. She casts her spell, is the idea, over everyone. And pretty soon, they move into what I call stupid world. This place where up is down and left is right. And nothing seems to make sense. But everybody seems to go along with her. And it's just a throng of people. We also find out that this woman's sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. 
Well, how is she doing the things she's doing? Well, we find out in this particular text that there is this, there's this literal beast that now is under her that we found way back in, in, first, in Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And it's this beast, and I'm not going to go into verse 8 because it's kind of confusing, but what he's saying is, is the power behind her, or the one that's putting her out there and causing her to allure all these different people in is this beast. In other words, she's the prostitute and he's the pimp. Again, I bet you didn't think I was going to say that word today. <laughs> Here's this beast sitting there pimping her out to everyone and alluring people in one by one by one. And again, the way John talks about it is it's something that is absolutely global. It is something that I believe, because I think this is still future, in which you're going to see a world in which they're going to start to line themselves up behind an empire and a kingdom in which we're going to, as Christians, watch how in the world did they do this. But it's just going to be this, this illusion, this delusion that's going to fall over people. I think this is important. It's important from this standpoint that he's going to come along later and he's going to help us to understand we've got to be wise. But this one that he's talking about, I mean, in this particular case at their time, this, this woman was sitting on what we call seven mountains is where she was seated. At this particular time, there was Rome. It was the capital. It had seven hills. And so in other words, what has happened is, is she's now sitting in the seat of power, controlling emperors and working over all of Rome at this particular time that John writes it. And she is sitting there now drawing people to herself, telling them, come to me. I will make your world safe and comfortable and secure. I will Pax Romana. I will make the world a safe place. And one by one, the people of Rome just began to flock to that. We saw it in Egypt, we saw it in Assyria, we saw it in all those different places. That's why in the, in the next particular verse it says there's five other kingdoms. But now there she sits in Rome and the people that would have been reading this would have known, oh, that is why all this is taking place. Not only that, but at the very end, it says there's these 10 kings that have this one mind. And when they get this one mind together, they're going to now be led by the beast. And it says in there, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called those chosen and faithful. So what he's now filling us in on is while everything is moving towards what seems to be a bad picture, this is what I meant at the beginning. Jesus wins. Now just, just stop for a second. As we look around the world and it feels so much like things are falling apart and there's this delusional force that seems to be kind of encompassing countries and nations and peoples and we wonder even in the back of our head what in the world is going on we have to keep in our mind as Christians and we must never forget in spite of how things get Jesus wins. It has to be the mantra of a local church. And what John is trying to do is empowered by the Holy Spirit is he's talking to these precious believers that are wondering what in the world is going on. And he's starting to explain to them, this is what is happening. And what is happening is that there's this world that's controlled by this beast that we know way back to chapter 12 is actually controlled by Satan. There's this prostitute that's sitting there alluring people in and everything that's happening out there is Satan. But Jesus Christ, God is in control. He will win no matter what see the moment that we lose sight of that we're in trouble but not only that but when Christians dare to go against this delusional force he says in there that they become drunk this woman now becomes drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus in other words you choose to confront that thing and there will be conflict he says, this is just the way it is, but Jesus wins. Now, when John saw this, if you can just imagine, he's hearing all these particular things and he's hearing this delusional force that's going to happen. He's just sitting there going, what do we do then? The angel looks back to him in verse seven and says to him, why do you marvel? And I'm going to explain to you, she says, basically, or he says to him, I'm going to explain to you what's going on. And what she, the angel says to him is, is, this is a call for wisdom. Now, let me just talk to those, because I see a few of you in here that are a little bit younger, maybe 20s and teens. There is a delusional force right now that is operating not only on this cosmic level, but as someone who went through public high school, if you go there, or even private high school, or your homeschool, or whatever it is, 
There is a delusional force that's right now at work that is doing everything that it can to seek to get you to buy into the world and this system. It's telling you to get the right job and get the right car and get the right house and provide in a certain way and to be able to have safety and comfort and security and all these different things. It is luring you in somehow thinking that at the end of it, if I can just get younger people to start moving this direction, that then I have them. And one by one, I've watched as so many different kids have gone through our student ministry and other student ministries that I've done and they get allured by that thing that's out there. And what the angel tells to John is, no, you need wisdom. You need wisdom to understand that this world and its system, we're going to find out, is absolutely falling apart. And as much as you try, and with everything that you are to try to create this safe and comfortable and perfect world, at the very end of it, we're going to learn it completely falls apart. Have wisdom. Not only that, it says this other voice from heaven came and said, come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Don't go down that path. Now, for those of us that are older that think, yeah, that's right, the youngins, man, I tell you what, it's a rough world. You are just as susceptible. Just as susceptible. And it beckons all of us in different ways. See, this is what this prostitute does, right? A prostitute doesn't come out all gangly and nasty. She comes out looking good and she gives you what you want. She, she allures you in by trying to pretend to be something that you want. And in going down there, you embrace it. And the idea that he's trying to talk about is not only to have wisdom, but to understand you have to stay away from that. Now, we can't get out of the world. The Bible says to not be of the world, but to be uniquely a part of it from the standpoint of reaching people for Christ. We have to understand what it is that we're doing. This world and its system is falling apart. And we can try to keep it together all we want, but John's point is, is come out from it. This is not something that you want. 1715, not only that, but the 10 horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the prostitute. What? See what I talked about? There's a pimp kind of component to this. They're going to put her out there to seek to draw in people and allure them in. But at the very end of it, the pimp doesn't want necessarily the prostitute. He wants what he gets from the prostitute, which is money for these people. Everything about it, he's saying to them, I'm putting her out there. But actually, there's this weird hatred of it. And this hatred now turns to the point where it says they will make her desolate and naked. And look at this language. Devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Whoa. What does that mean? His point is, is that once he starts to draw people to himself and he gets what he wants from the prostitute, he discards this particular influence and now he has them. You see it in like 1 Peter 5, 8, don't you? Like I was looking at this particular passage this week because I was reading the book of 1 Peter. But it just says, be sober-minded. In other words, use your head. It's this Greek word, sophroneo, understand what's going on. He, he uses another word, Gregorette, will be watchful to stand up and guard. Why? Because there's this real adversary, the devil, who's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In other words, open your eyes. He's writing to these precious saints saying, listen to me. There's a real Satan and he's out there and he's alluring you in. He's alluring you in with this prostitute. And the best way I can say it is, it's like putting a worm on a hook. I don't know how many of you have gone fishing, but as a little kid, right, you would take the worm and you would put it on the hook. And I don't care about the worm. I'm throwing the worm out there so that a fish bites it and devours it so that I can catch the fish and reel the fish in. And my goal is, and even though I don't really like fish, but let's just say I did like fish, to eat the fish, to kill the fish. Satan is sitting there and he's real and he's tempting and he's using this prostitute and it's not just in the future, it is right now. Now, if right now that you're sitting there going, oh, not me, Satan has you right where he wants you. It's everywhere. It's beckoning us. It's calling out to us, come my way, drift into me. I will give you what you want. I will build you up. I will give you the desires of your heart. Go after those particular things, but don't move towards Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what the prostitute is doing. But once you are gotten, you are gotten. And the idea that James communicates to us is that it's death. Anybody else in a good mood now? 
He goes on and he says this. He says, then I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with the glory. And he called out with a mighty voice that fallen, fallen is Babylon, that great, uh, the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Not only did, did Babylon experience this particular thing, we know now that Babylon is just kind of this little tiny village in the middle of nowhere. Rome, even for a time, became desolate. And listen to me. I know that some people want to make America great again, and I want to see America become a great influence like it's supposed to be. But if it follows along the line of every single kingdom that's come before it, it is going to dwindle and fall. But our connection is not to the United States. Our connection is to Jesus Christ. Everybody heard me, so I don't get bad emails. I'll even sing, you know, God bless America or something. I love the United States. But let's not be deluded. He's just showing this idea that everything slowly begins to fall apart. Everything moves in the same way. In fact, every kingdom that has come before doesn't usually fall from without. It falls what? From within. It slowly buys into this prostitute. And after a while, as it buys into this particular prostitute, the prostitute does her work. Satan casts it aside. And we know that Satan, this one who's the destroyer, wants nothing more now to leave havoc in his path. And not only is it on a national scale, it also is in our personal lives. John's just saying, warning, don't go there. Don't go down this path. Verse 3, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. In other words, safety, comfort, security. For her sins, it says now, are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. He's looking down and realizing the chaos that's been brought by her. And it says in there, to pay her back as she herself was paid back, Uh, pay back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup, the uh, a cup, the mixed, uh, she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen and I am no widow and mourning. I shall never see what's he saying. She sat there and said, I will be fine. I will be stable. Everything will be there. And she's deluded and lying to herself and lying to all those that follow her. In 2007, 2008, 2009, I don't know how many of you remember feeling that weird feeling as the economy tanked. Now, I don't hardly have any money, but I was like, oh no, my $5, you know what's going to happen to it? But I just watched as we suddenly realized this whole thing can fall apart, can it? Remember 2001 on September 11th? I remember coming into my house, and as I walked into the house, my wife was sitting there watching whatever show she was watching, and suddenly it cut away to a building sitting there burning, right, from a plane going into it. As we're sitting there watching, going, oh my gosh, what's going on? We know what happened next. A second plane came into it. Now, all of us were sitting there, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We suddenly realized in a pretty powerful way that we are this group of people that we think everything is secure and we think everything is stable. But have you ever realized there's these strings that you start to pull out of any group of people and it just starts to fall apart? What God is trying to tell of these people that he's writing to is the world and this system is just a house of cards. There's a powerful God that oversees everything. It's kind of in this case like Luke 12 where he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covenances for one's life does not consist of abundance of his possessions. In other words, your possessions are just a house of cards. He told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he brought to, he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. We just bought a house. And I don't know how many of you know this, but I have a house with a nine-car garage. 
Because everybody knows I'm a total gearhead. Not. Just so if you don't know me, I, I know nothing about cars. I only know there's a flux capacitor in the back that is incredible. <laughs> For those of you that are younger, never mind. But it's just this, I know nothing about it. And have you ever moved and suddenly you take all your stuff and you put it out in like one area and you realize how much junk you've accumulated? I sat out there the other day and a thought actually came to my mind. I have insurance. Is Greg Burkhardt in here? He's my insurance guy. Don't listen, Greg. But I thought, I can just light a match and it can all go and everything will be good. We'll start all over. We just have stuff. We do this because in the back of our heads, we think stuff is our security. It's this prostitute that calls out to the world, get these things, buy these things, enjoy these things, find comfort in these things. In other words, everything that it can to draw you away from Christ in a powerful way to somehow get in your head that I will now be able to be safe and comfortable and merry. But look what happens next. Oops, I went too far. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? In other words, nobody's. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Proverbs 18 talks about this idea of the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is a strong city, like a high wall in his, look at that, imagination. First Timothy now, he clarifies, though, it's not about being rich. And so if you have more than $5 like I do, you're, you're, you're okay. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set up their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in, in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's not about things and money and possessions. If God blesses you with it, use it for his kingdom. But he's just trying to get across to us. These things that we think we're finding safety and comfort and security in can be pulled out from under us so easily. It's the story of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. Now, again, let me talk to those of you younger for just a second. I am not saying to you that it is a bad thing to make money at all. I'm saying to you, though, the intent with which you use that money is so important. Riches come, riches go. Yesterday, I was doing a funeral for a guy. And did you know nobody talked about his wealth? Nobody talked about his things. They all talked about the man that he is. At the end of our lives, the things that matter are not our stuff. It's who God created us to be. And it's not what you know, it's who you know, Jesus. In other words, now, Put your life into those things. He said, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Look at that. She built it up, but it just falls apart. Death and mourning and famine. She'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who, com who committed sexual immorality and, and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. It's just fallen apart. I had my hopes in you and my dreams in you. Everything was in this moment and it just all fell apart. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys her cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver and jewels and purse and fine linen and purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves even. That is human souls, the fruit for which your soul longed has now gone from you and all your delicacies and all your splinters are lost to you, never to be found again. They're just standing there watching everything go in front of them. And the merchants of these wares who, who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. They're just devastated. 
Sailors even get in on this. And all the shipmasters and the seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade on the sea stood far off and cried out as the smoke of her burning. What city was like that great city? It's gone. Everything can just fall apart tomorrow. We were talking about it just recently. I don't know how many of you caught on the news. Did you hear the Russians have hacked into our, our power grid? Anybody hear that? Do you know what would happen in the United States if our power grid went? We'd have to, like, not use air conditioning. <laughs> All hell would break loose. In small little things, we feel like everything is so safe and so secure. I used to live in a town that had the big MX missiles. I thought, look at us, our grandeur. We have MX missiles, but the problem is not going to be us shooting bombs. I just think if we fall apart, it's going to fall apart from the inside. Everything that we've placed our hope in and our confidence in can go tomorrow. But here's the key, is all of them found their life and their goals in this city. It's a tale of two cities. It's, it's the way I would put it, maybe, to, to, I hope Charles Dickens doesn't roll over in his grave, but it's these two cities, this one city that's falling apart, and there's this other city that we're about ready to get to in the coming weeks, a city that is eternal, that will never end, that is ruled by Jesus Christ, that when we store up treasure there, it will be there forever. It will be finer than gold or silver or anything that perishes. We will store up a treasure in heaven that will stand nonstop for eternity. Don't store up things here. And it says they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she's been laid waste. He goes on and it says, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea with this prostitute attached to it. And it says, so will Babylon, the great city who's thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And, a cra and no craftsman of any kind will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. The idea is, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, where you throw something into a river, it makes a, or a lake, and it makes a huge plunk, and then all of a sudden it just goes still, and you watch the thing just go to the bottom. He says, that's what it'll feel like. Now again, this world is wonderful, and God has created it. But this system that is headed by Satan that we tend to just find so much allurement to is dying and one day will be gone, but the kingdom of Jesus will be forever. Don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up your treasures in heaven that last for eternity. He says in there now, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints. In other words, they just kill these people anyways. And of all who have been slain on the earth. In other words, this system now for those that know Jesus, as we watch it drift away, is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. This system that's headed by Satan, that's heading down. We know that when that thing starts to head down, the kingdom that is promised with us in Jesus Christ will finally come. And all those people that have awaited for his kingdom, that have known that he's going to come back and establish a kingdom where he will reign forever, that people mock and look down upon will one day now finally come. And his point is, is who will look stupid then? Anybody remember Indiana Jones in the last crusade? Remember in it that one of the guys walks in there and he was trying to choose which cup to choose. And the guy looks at him and he says, you must choose wisely. The guy grabbed the cup that looked good and he drank the water and he fizzled and looked all weird as he decayed. And the guy looked at him and says, you've chosen unwisely. There's going to come a time where all of you that have placed your hope in Jesus Christ will not look stupid. All of you that have banked everything on following him will not look stupid. All of you that longed for the day that Jesus Christ would not look stupid. 
In 2 Peter 3, in fact, there's groups of people in 2 Peter 3 where they're mocking Christians, saying, where's Jesus? When's he going to come back? And his whole point was is that, no, Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back with wrath. But do not overlook one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is God holding back? He's beckoning people to him in grace. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, the reason that God is holding back is for actually you to hear this today and to be exposed to the reality that there's a real Savior, Jesus Christ, who's calling out to people that's giving hope inside of him and he's beckoning, but there will come a point where Jesus Christ will come back and he will be done. And at that particular moment, there will be no hope. But right now there is hope. Today's the day. If you don't know Jesus Christ, today is the day to know him. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will finally be exposed. In other words, what he's saying is there will come a day where God will clean his earth. He will get rid of everything that's been of defilement, everything that's an abomination, everything that's a blasphemy. He will take it off of this earth, and in removing it, the only thing that will remain is him and his kingdom. That's why the church should rejoice. As we watch this thing potentially going down all around the world, it's heartache. But that means Jesus is coming back. Revelation 19, everything is all weird and everything seems to be out of control. But then all of a sudden he heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Oops. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. In other words, you didn't realize this, but we're, we should be charismatic. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you who are his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, Jesus has won and he's coming back to get his. Now let me tell you something. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for the time finally where everything starts to now come into this beautiful position where I'm watching everything fall around me and wonder what is going on. And suddenly into this picture now, we look around and we see God's church that's been made beautiful. Now, how were they made beautiful? They were made beautiful through difficulty and trial and struggle. That's why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be look at this, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, all these things that have squashed down upon you and you've resisted them and you've had confidence in Jesus Christ, it has just formed and shaped you more into Jesus. And here's what's crazy, is finally when we stand before Jesus, all these good works that we've done that aren't our good works now are gonna go with us into this final kingdom. We're gonna store up our treasures in heaven and we'll be standing there clothed in these good deeds that Jesus did through us. It is worth it to live for Christ. But not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And look at this. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In other words, as it presses down we begin to endure, and as we endure, we start to look like Jesus, and the more we look like Jesus, the more we have hope. 
We all tend to be people that avoid trials, but God says don't. Those who walk through them, not avoid them, are the ones that find hope. Those of you that are faithful and follow me, those are the ones that find hope. So many in this room are hopeless, not because there's not hope, but because you've been avoiding what Jesus wants to do in your life. God is beckoning you to walk through the difficulties of this life so that you can learn to endure, so you can be faithful, so that you can learn what it looks like to look like Jesus Christ. And then walking through it, the more that I look like Jesus Christ, the more then that I find hope and want to be with him one day. You do not have hope in Jesus just because you said a prayer. You have hope in Jesus because you had a, said a prayer and and God, through his Holy Spirit, begins to work in you. All these things that we do, one day when we stand before him, we'll stand there as testimony to Jesus. And the angel said, look, in light of this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh my gosh, what is that going to be like? And he said to me, these are true words. And John, not sure what to do, fell down in front of him. He's like, no, no, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant who holds the testimony. Worship Jesus. Why? Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, this is about Jesus. Then I saw heaven. Now watch this. Chris stole my thunder last week. Big jerk. <laughs> Behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, and the way Chris described this, all of us that know Jesus, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Oh my gosh, what's that going to be? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. They're like, he didn't really grow up in Wyoming. He looks funny when he rides a horse. <laughs> but from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations that have stood against him. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. By the way, he has a tattoo, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw the angel standing in the sun in a loud voice. He called all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of heroes and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. Pretty picture. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. Everything that we talked about back in chapter 17. And the beast was captured with it, the false prophet. And in its presence, he had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword. They came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with flesh. Oh, gosh. Now, I know some of you are sitting there going, I thought you were going to end with hope. And I am. When this is all done, we're finally going to learn what life was intended to be. As Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3, begins to clean his earth and remove everything that stood against him, whether we're talking demonic forces, whether we're talking this beast or this prophet or this prostitute, or even people that refuse to bend their knee to him and refuse to be a part of his kingdom, he will clean his particular earth. And when all things are wiped away, now the whole thing is, is God's people will enter into and experience his goodness and his righteousness and his justice and his peace forever. I've said this before, but what is that going to be like? I woke up this morning and I heard a noise in my house. Now, everybody who knows me, I'm a fighter, not a lover. You know what I'm saying? And I looked over and there was a lump in my bed. And I'm figuring that's my wife. Little did I realize that my son had got up scared because he had a nightmare. And he was laying there. And I was about ready to go kung fu my wife. 
I go swinging around there, you know, and your heart's going, and we just moved, you know, so I didn't know where my, you know, my fully automatic guns were. But so I, I, I cruise around, you know, and I was, I'm like, yeah, I would, not really, but that's what I felt like. And I'm looking at her, and, but then as, as I realized it was her, and she went back to bed, and my heart continued to beat. I sat over there going, what's it going to be like to never have to have fear again? I walked into my kiddos' rooms, and this was at 2.30 in the morning, and I just started to pray about for them. What's it going to be like to never worry again? What is it going to be like now where, where suddenly evil is removed from the world and actually people authentically get to know one another and actually begin to enjoy and love one another? What's it going to be like when we're sitting there and there's, there's no longer traffic, when there's no longer chaos, where there's no longer all these things, but suddenly will come a world that is reigned by Jesus, where everything will be right, everything that has stood against him now is gone, and finally everything that we've longed for, all that humanity has longed for from the very beginning will finally be realized. What will that be like? And this is where Revelation is going. All of you in here that know Jesus, Jesus doesn't only win, but he's establishing a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of true safety, a kingdom of security, and a kingdom in which he reigns supreme. This is where John's going. This is where the story's going. But right now he's calling out to us, don't buy in to the lies of this world. John wrote in 1 John, do not love this world nor the things of this world, for the things of this world are falling away. It's a call to all of us in this room to realize we can't play games anymore, can we? It's a call to all of us in this, world, in this room to realize there's a real battle and a real war going on all around us. It's a call to all of us to not go into legalism. Listen to me. I don't want us to leave here and now say, that's right, and we're not going to you know, buy things, and we're going to you know, live off of squirrels the rest of our life. No. But it's a call not to find our happiness and our contentment in this world, but to find our satisfaction and our happiness in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, because he will never fade. Now, I want to bring up uh, two people, Monica and Sherwin. I don't know where they are. Come on up. I don't know how many of you know Monica and Sherwin, um, but uh, I'm going to let them tell their story a little bit. Could you grab those two mics over there about how it was that they came to know Jesus Christ? Both, you can grab both of them. And could you also grab that stool? Don't bring the stand. Oh, there's only one mic? Oh, you have to share it. How cute. Let's not put her behind you. Oh, okay. no, I know. That's weird. No, I know. Oh, <laughs> there you go. There we go. All right. Do we need to do counseling while we have the two of you together? <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons that um, I brought them up to here is just because I believe each of them have an amazing story of how God pulled them and rescued them out of darkness. And so maybe one of you, I don't even know who's going to start, maybe just start a little bit about how it is that uh, you guys even came about. So put that up there. There you go. <laughs> so um, I'm from El Salvador, and um, I have an older sister and a younger brother. And um, ever since I can remember, my dad uh, was an alcoholic. And so my mom took the role of both parents, taking care of both of all three of us. And um, there was a lot of struggle in the marriage. And um, it was hard for us to see that. And my mom knew that that wasn't the environment that she want, wanted us to, to grow up in. And thing, things got really bad as we grew up older and we started understanding everything that was going on. And also around the country, it got really bad. So my aunt and my uncle that lived here in Simi Valley, with their help, they were able to um, bring us here to, to Simi Valley. Um, and then we, 
and pretty much we went to high school and college here. Yeah, for, for me, how did I end up in Simi Valley? So I was born and raised in Iran. Um, from, you know, I was born until 13 years old and living in a country that's an op oppressive um, government that uses religion to kind of control people and rule harshly over them. Um, and to that, actually, to that, we lost my uncle, you know, because he spoke against the government. They picked him up from in jails. And we didn't really see him for a long time. And 10 years later, we get a phone call that has been executed. Uh, we never got a body or anything like that. So, so I grew up really um, disliking religion, even as far as hating religion, uh, what it all meant. And so we were living there. You know, we had an okay life, but, uh, but my family won religion. You know, there was no God in my life at any point. And right around the time we were 13, you know, we left, we left Iran, we went to Switzerland, and we were there for two years as political refugees, and we bounced around uh, refugee camp to refugee camp. I remember one of them being um, like an underground bomb shelter, just like underground, 500 people, you know, with not four, four, four level bunk beds, you know, each family would get a four little bunk bed, and that was us, me and my mom. Later, my dad was able to escape and come over there. But we were there until we got our green cards and everything figured out. And, and then basically from Switzerland, Geneva, we flew to LAX, and then we came to Simi Valley. So how I came here and how she came here. So there's that story. Could maybe just share, how, how, did you, how did you come to know Christ? Okay, so as, as a young girl, I mean, we were raised in a Catholic church, and um, we used to go to church, but I never actually read the Bible. And um, as a little girl, being afraid, and um, I remember I used to just get in the go lock myself in the restroom and get in my knees and just praying to God, just talking to Him and asking him to keep our family safe and bring my dad safe at home because sometimes he, will, he wouldn't come back till late at night. And so as, being as a little girl, I think I, <laughs> I was just afraid. Um, and I also started talking to God and asking him, why? Why is this happening to our family? And why was I even born? And I remember that God... <laughs> so amazing. He answered, he just told me, he said, you are worth it and you are made for a special reason. I made you for a special reason. And I remember taking those words in my heart and whenever I felt afraid or uh, just like I needed love, I think I, I really believed in those words. And so later on when we moved here um, when, when I was in college. I felt like distant from God. And I mean, I, I'm still not, I did not have a Bible, not reading the Bible. And um, I remember it was towards the end of my last year of college that I felt God really calling me, calling me to just seek him and find him or something. And so I remember driving by this church uh, at school, and I always, I don't know, there was something about this church. And so I went in, and I mean, having experienced uh, going to Catholic Mass, you know, um, we used to just go sit down and listen to the, to, the, to the service and just go home. Well, this was different. Everybody there noticed that I was new. And so it was kind of nice because they, they came up and talked to me and offered me a Bible. And at the beginning, it was a little overwhelming. And I kept on going. I kept on coming. And, but then I, I graduated, and I came. I moved back to Simi Valley. I moved back home. And at that time, my aunt, actually, that helped us come here. She was coming here to Cornerstone. And she invited my mom, and my mom brought my brother and my sister here, so they became believers. And so moving back, to, moving back home, they invited me too. So I said, okay, let's go. I, I want to go. So um, as I started 
actually reading scripture now and listening to the services, I knew that this, this was it. This was what was missing from my life. Mm. And so um, I, I got baptized and I accepted Christ into my life. And then, and then at, this, at this time we were dating this whole time. We started dating in college and we got engaged. And so as I'm reading my Bible now, there's a lot of stuff that says there, uh, there's, there's something wrong here, going on here. Because he's a non-believer, and I'm about to be married, positively married to a non-believer. So I reached out to the church, and we got connected with Terry Irwood. <laughs> and uh, we started going. I asked him if he was willing to come to talk to, to Terry, and he said yes. So we started coming, and as he started giving us scripture, and, and I, we started reading about uneven yoke, and how God had created marriage to dis, display Jesus in our marriage, and I thought to myself, I can't do that with him. So I started really wrestling in my heart, like I, I really did not know that I could go through it. So my prayer was, um, just give me an answer, God. Tell me what to do, and I will do it. And then if the answer is to break up with him, to give me the strength to do it, because I want it, I want it to, to truly fully cry, to, to follow Christ. Yeah, so like, as she said, um, me coming from background, completely unbeliever, and she said, um, let's, you know, if you want to get married, we got to go through this marriage counseling. So we went and met with Terry, and Terry Yearwood kind of walk us through the scripture, and I was like very, very defensive at the beginning, and, but I said, you know what, I'll come. You know, so I started going to church with her, you know, I remember actually sitting right here, and, and as we were going through the marriage counseling, my you know, I started, you know, opening up a little bit. And, and it was a summer that uh, Josh, Josh, Joshua Walker was walking through the story of God. And, and I was just listening through it. And me coming from the background of looking at religion as something that controls you through the, that lens, I, I was very defensive. And coming from a scientific background from my education, it was like, I'm looking at this book, it's thousands of pages. How am I gonna read all this? And I don't know, is there a test at the end of it I have to pass? You know, <laughs> how do I do this? And, and in Islam, it's more about, you know, we weren't religious, but Islam said it's all about works, you know? And I'm like, oh, I haven't done any work. I'm definitely gonna not pass this test in time for our wedding or whatever that's gonna be. Uh, so I'm sitting here, every time I hear a verse, I will open up and I'll read that chapter. And we went through the whole story and we landed on Ephesians. So we got to Ephesians 2 and, and he's going through it and I'm kind of reading. And I just read and landed on Ephesians 2.8, which he says, it is, it is by grace through faith that you are, it is, it is by grace through faith that you are saved. And it is not... It is a gift of God, and it's not your own doing. So it's not a result of work. So no man can boast. Then that just, that just was it. Like, so it's not, yeah, I don't have to read this whole thing. I don't have to do all this thing. It is grace. It's faith. I just have to accept it. And that, you know, I think all her prayers and all the time and just being here among believers and hearing the message and, you know, understanding what grace really means. Um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, and our next marriage counseling with Terry, I was, Carrie, uh, Terry, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm ready, you know, it's just, it was time, and, you know, we prayed, and that, from that day, that was almost 10 years ago. Amen. Okay. Well, it's so cool, when we were sitting there, I was thinking about the passage of Scripture, is God was holding back to bring these two into the kingdom. Right now, sitting in front of you are two people that have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. They are living victory of Jesus right in front of us all. Amen? All right. Just stay, whoop, stay here. Let's just stay here. So in the name of the Father, 
who is powerful and able and orchestrates all things. In the name of the Son, who will return one day in a robe dipped in blood as King of kings and Lord of lords. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who will save us and sustain us and empower us to the end. God bless you this week as you live in a difficult world with a great end to the story. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you.